0: We are uh, grateful whenever someone new joins our worship team. And as you might have noticed, Pastor Paul's wife, Anna, has begun to sing with us. So let's welcome her to the team. Thankful for all the, uh, the gifts that God has put into our people and very thankful for their willingness to share those gifts so that the full body of Christ might be blessed. Um, it is important that each one of us considers the part that God would like us to play in the body of Christ, there, there are no wasted seats in here. We all want to play a part in the mission that God has called us to. And so uh, I'm grateful to see so many of you involved with focus groups, so many of you involved with ministries like Kids Club and Children's Church. And if you have not yet found the place where God desires for you to serve, I would encourage you to really pray through that and ask God to reveal that to you, to give you the motivation and the encouragement that you need so that you can plug in and apply yourself to the work that God is doing here at First Family Church. Our ushers, that's another way that we can serve, is through ushering, are bringing around note sheets and pencils and Bibles. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Um, Before we do begin the message time, I wanted to clarify a couple things that I said uh, last week. Uh, I had lost my preaching Bible, and thank the Lord I found it this week. I had put it in the wrong vehicle, and so I figured out where I misplaced it. Uh, But I mentioned last week that I really appreciate it when people bring a physical paper paper Bible to church, and I hope that I I didn't come across the wrong way to you. If you use a phone with an app on it or an iPad, if you use an electronic means to worship God through the Word, please don't feel like a second-class citizen. That was not my intention at all to make you feel like you got to have a paper Bible, or it doesn't count. You know, that's not my my goal, okay? So I I don't want you to feel that way. Mostly I was uh, more uh, harping on myself because I know that whenever I go to a church, one of the things that I look for, first of all, is I look around to see if people actually bring a Bible to church. Because if you go to a church and you don't see a single Bible in anyone's hands, and especially if the pastor doesn't walk up to the pulpit carrying the Word of God, it makes it seem as though that church does not value the Word, that they don't really see a lot of importance in having that book be the foundation of all that they do. So I was more embarrassed to myself for losing my Bible than anything else. So please, if you were offended last week, uh, we want you to seek God out. And there are some amazing technological resources that we can use today that our brothers in generations past have not been able to benefit from. So if you use an iPad or your phone, uh, don't feel embarrassed at all. We're grateful just to see you applying yourself to the, to the Word and letting it sink into your bones. And inevitably, the Word of God needs to be not in a book or on a tablet. It needs to be written on the fleshy tablets of our heart. And that is our goal, that God's Word would sink in deep, that we would walk in the truth because we are studying His Word and we are considering what it means and the directions that He has given to us through the things that He has revealed through the saints uh, over the years. So we are in Galatians chapter 1 today. And we would appreciate for you to either flip or turn or do whatever you need to do to get Galatians 1 in front of you. Uh, we're only going to be looking at one verse this morning. We're going to be looking at verse 10. Because the idea that this one verse conveys has a wealth of relevance to the way that we approach our lives. It speaks to the very basic motivations that drive us to do the things that we do. And so leading up to this verse, the Apostle Paul, who was instrumental in starting the churches in the region of Galatia. Began his letter with a brief introduction. It skipped some of the pleasant greetings that Paul usually writes in his letters. And so last week we were talking about why he was so to the point. We talked about a grave error that the Galatian churches were beginning to make and that they were accepting a false version of the gospel that was not preached by Paul, was not preached by Barnabas and the other missionaries that initially started those churches. And Paul wants them to see how important it is for them to cling to the one true gospel as it was revealed to them from the Lord. So the key issue of this entire letter to the Galatians is not Paul. He's not the focus of the letter. The key issue is the gospel. It's God's good news that he wants to save wretched sinners like us and has made a way for that to be possible, a way that we could have never made on our own. That is the point of the book of the Galatian letter. And last week we talked about how the message is more important, it is greater than the messenger. And that holds true today. But because Paul is arguing for the true gospel, because he is the advocate to try to lead these people away from deception and back to truth, the people of Galatia, their opinion of him has some relevance. If the people of Galatia are being persuaded into thinking by these false prophets and these false teachers that Paul is an unreliable source of truth, if they have been told by these false teachers that Paul's not worthy of trust, then Paul needs to address that issue in his letter if he's going to have any hope of impacting them towards the true gospel. Otherwise, they're just going to write off the things that he writes as the opinions of a man with questionable integrity. So the first two chapters of Galatians are going to spend a good deal of time explaining why we should trust Paul's word about the gospel and why he is a messenger of the truth of God. So if you have your Bibles ready, we're going to be in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 1. It's just one verse. We're going to read it and then we're going to digest it for the rest of our time together this morning. For am I now seeking the approval of man Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This question that Paul raises is a response to an accusation. Paul has continually had to defend himself. And as you read the other letters of Paul, you're going to see that this comes up again and again, where people are trying to undermine his ministry by attacking his character. And it is apparent that here, Paul is defending once again his character, who he is and why he's trustworthy. There are some accusations that have been made, uh, have been made um, against him. Uh, first of all, people are beginning to say that Paul is a people pleaser that he cares more about the things that people think about him than he does about the gospel. They're pointing the fingers at him and saying that this man is willing to say whatever it takes to get people on his side. He's a people pleaser, so don't listen to the things that he says. Second accusation being made against Paul is this, that he is inconsistent in his adherence to the law of Moses. People are saying that one minute, Paul's all about the law of Moses. He's all about walking in step with the things that were given to the nation of Israel. And in the next moment, it seems like it doesn't mean anything at all. It seems like it's all about grace. So people are trying to make him look in a sense like he's wishy-washy, like he doesn't stand firm on the things that he preaches and proclaims. And so as I explain that second accusation of inconsistency, it's going to become clear how the two accusations are linked very tightly together. We have seen why Paul should be considered a legitimate apostle. He's revealed to us his story as we went back and looked in Acts chapter uh, 9, and we talked about how on the road to Damascus, this man Saul, who had been persecuting the church and had been aggressively trying to imprison people who preached Jesus Christ, was interrupted in a miraculous way by the risen Jesus, that he in bodily form spoke to Paul, gave him an affirmation that he was in fact the Son of God, And that salvation could only come through him. And so from that point forward, that was what Paul's life was going to be completely about, was the message he had received from Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He was no longer a Pharisee from that point forward. He was a legitimate apostle. But he wasn't the only apostle, was he? He didn't consider himself the greatest apostle. In fact, he, because of his past of persecuting the church, describes himself as the least of all the apostles. And just about everywhere that Paul goes, he's careful that he brings other faithful men with him so that by the testimony of two or more witnesses, the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be preached in the countrysides. In Acts chapter 16, you can turn there if you like, um, we see that Paul is just starting out on his second mission journey. Uh, we saw how he walked his way through Galatia, and began churches in Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and different places such as that. Uh, About a year after he completed that first missionary round, he went back to Syria, Antioch for a little while, preached there, and then it was determined that he should go out again on a second mission. And in this second mission, he and Barnabas, his dear friend, debated as to who they should bring with them. They had brought a young man named John Mark, on their first missionary journey, but John Mark did not complete that journey with them. They had begun their journey through the island of, of, uh, of Cyprus, and after that miraculous ministry there in Cyprus, when they uh, landed in Galatia, John Mark, for whatever reason, we're not entirely sure, abandoned the mission and went back home. Paul is now a little bit stung by that, and doesn't want to rely on a man like John Mark because he doesn't believe he can be trusted to carry out the mission to its completion. So he says to Barnabas, I don't want to take John Mark. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. And he dearly des- desires to give this man another chance. And so they're split. They're contention about uh, who they should bring on this mission. And they decide finally that they can't agree. And so Barnabas is going to take John Mark. And Barnabas and John Mark are going to go on a mission journey of their own. Paul's going to take a man named Silas. And they're going to go on the mission journey they had originally planned to take. So Paul takes with him Silas. They embark to the other Antioch, which is in Galatia. And they begin to preach the word there again and check on some of the churches that they had started earlier. So we are in chapter 16. And in chapter 16, they come to a place called Lystra. And there they find a young man named Timothy who has a bit of a reputation. Timothy is a young believer, but he is very outspoken about what he believes. And so the people of that region had heard the gospel from him. He had preached in various places. Timothy is impressed with his knowledge and with his zeal for the Lord. And so he decides he wants to bring Timothy with him. And so we're in Acts chapter 16. I want to read verses 1 through 3 for you. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. That means his mom was of Jewish lineage, but his dad was just a Roman citizen, a Gentile, and not a believer in Yahweh, the one true God. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what we note there is that Paul desires to have... This man, Timothy, works side by side with him. And if you've read the letters of First and Second Timothy, you know that he becomes a very close protege of Paul. He, he really benefits from his knowledge of the gospel. And it's possible even that Timothy was saved on the first mission journey through Lystra. We're not entirely sure. But Paul does something interesting before they embark on this journey together. He has Timothy be circumcised. Circumcision was a physical sign of an adherence to the covenant of Abraham. That one who took on circumcision was identifying themselves with the history of the Israelite people, uh, was identifying themselves with uh, the the worship of God in the temple. And so it's a little bit curious here that Paul is going to have Timothy be circumcised before they stretch out on this journey. Apparently because his father was a Greek, he had never been circumcised before. Um, It would seem almost like a step backwards. Especially if you've read Acts 15. In Acts 15, there was a great controversy in the church in Jerusalem. They had heard reports of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They had heard that many who had no background with Judaism whatsoever were beginning to trust Jesus as this Savior of the world that God had sent to redeem sinners, even Gentile sinners. And so people in Jerusalem were beginning to argue back and forth. What do we do with all these non-Jewish Christians? The main question was Do we need to require them to follow all the laws of Moses? And it really got to the heart of salvation, which is what we're going to be discussing quite a bit as we work our way through the Galatian letter. Do these new Gentile believers just have to have faith in Jesus Christ? Or do they have to have faith in Jesus Christ and then also agree to follow all the laws of Moses? Well, there was much debate, and there was much back and forth. They prayed diligently. In the church in Jerusalem, and then finally they came to a conclusion together. And James, the half brother of Jesus, announced that decision: that these Gentile believers would by no means need to take on circumcision; they would not need to keep the full law of Moses; they needed to have faith in Jesus Christ, and faith in Jesus Christ would get them to the grace that it alone can save us. That was a very, very important judgment in Jerusalem. So why, in chapter 15, is this decision made that circumcision is not necessary for salvation? And then we see Paul circumcising Timothy. It raises some question marks. Especially when, later on in the Galatian letter, we're going to read that Paul didn't require that of all his fellow missionaries. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, he speaks of a man named Titus, who was also a convert to the faith. And he says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So, Paul did not have Titus circumcised, but he did have Timothy circumcised. Do you see how some people could take knowledge of this and point to Paul and say, You're a hypocrite. You're not consistent. One day it seems like you're trying to please the Judaizers, those Jewish background Christians who believe that adherence to the law is critical to faith. You're having, you're having Timothy circumcised because you want to impress those people. You want to gain their favor. But then when they're not around anymore and you're around all these Gentile believers in these outposts that are kind of farther away from Jerusalem, it seems then that you're happy to act as if you're a Gentile and say that the law has no meaning at all. Why are you such a hypocrite? It's possible that that's the kind of pressure that Paul was hearing from his opponents. Paul even says elsewhere in the Corinthian letter that he would become all things to all people. I'm sure this approach to ministry fueled the flames of those who were trying to discredit the man. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-23. through 23. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, Does it sound like maybe Paul is a people pleaser here? That he's really just concerned about people patting him on the back and telling him that he's done a great job and saying, Hey, we agree with you. We're on your side. If Paul's opponents are right, and if Paul is primarily a people pleaser, that is a serious problem. It would be a very serious problem for a leader in God's church, and it would be a very serious problem for anyone who professes Jesus as Lord. Friends, it might surprise you today to hear that we cannot point our hearts towards pleasing people. That is not what we must do as believers. And I want to give you some very good reasons why that's a bad way to live your life if Jesus Christ has saved you. If you are trying to please people, you are setting yourself up for imminent disappointment. First of all, because what pleases people isn't always pure. If you're trying to please people, you may be, might be trying to satisfy somebody who wants something that they should not want. People want lots of impure things, and so we should not desire to please people who don't know really what they should be desiring in their lives in the first place. Genesis 6:5 says the Lord. This is, this is God speaking through the prophet about the state of the world right before Noah built the ark and the world was flooded. He says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'd like to think we're doing better than then but I can't totally say that we are. We live in a world where the sinful tendencies of man are constantly on display around us. Man desires what is impure often. So if we are going to set our hearts on pleasing man, then we might be setting our hearts on putting a smile on the face of man, but putting a frown on the face of God at the same time. What pleases people is often selfish by nature. A man is pleased when he gets what he wants. He often put up with it if you get what you want too, but man typically wants what he wants. So if I'm trying to please a person, then I might just very well be building into their selfish nature. I might be helping them build their kingdom instead of doing what God knows is very best for the kingdom of heaven, for all the people of the earth. What pleases people is often short-sighted. It sees what is here and what is now. It ignores the big picture issue for the sake of what is right here in front of us. We need to be wiser than that. We've got to see beyond the here and the now. And there's no one who sees beyond the here and now better than God. So if we're going to try to please anyone in this life, we should try to please the one who sees the big picture of history, not just the big picture of our lives, not just the big picture of this year. We should try to please a God who knows all things and sees how everything is going to play out in time. What pleases people is often perverted and cruel and destructive. I know this is kind of a lighthearted point, but isn't it a little embarrassing that we laugh so easily at the misfortune of other people? How many of you have watched the show America's Funniest Home Videos, which might as well be retitled America's Funniest Home Tragedies, caught on tape so that you can laugh at them? right? How many of you, and you might be guilty to admit this, but you see a home video of a, of a man playing ball with his kid. And he puts the tee there on the ground, and the kid's got the bat, and he's raring to go. He's ready. And he's, the dad sets the ball on the tee. And you don't say it out loud, but in your mind, you're really hoping that when that kid unloads on that ball, it goes right where it shouldn't go. You want to see it so you can laugh at it. You want to see this guy doubled over in pain. You want to see it bounce off his head. You want to see something funny. That's the heart of man. We desire things that we should not desire. We are entertained by things that should turn us off, but for some reason we can't stop watching the train wreck. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked and evil beyond all things. And so we've got to be careful about trying to please people who may very well be pleased by what is wrong and what is detestable to the Lord God. In contrast, God is never pleased by wickedness. God never desires what is unholy and dirty. He doesn't even take pleasure in the righteous condemnation of sinners. Though God is just and He must punish the sinner, Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven says He takes no joy in it. God doesn't set up hell so that He can watch those suckers burning forever. That's not why God has created a hell. He created hell because He's pure and holy and He cannot let sin persist. But He takes no joy in sending people there. So our God always desires what is good and what is pure. Can you see how much better it is to try to please a God who knows what is worthy of of our desires rather than it is to please man who often desires what is wrong and corrupt. Secondly, people's values and desires are ever-changing. Man hardly ever knows what they really want. Trying to please a man is like trying to hit a moving target. You never really know what you're doing is is pleasing to people or not, whether they're very satisfied. And often you do exactly what somebody hopes you'll do, but then their desires have changed in the meantime, and now they want you to do something completely different. When Solomon is dedicating the first temple in Jerusalem, he prays a very beautiful prayer of dedication. Uh, And we learn a lot through that prayer, a lot about God, a lot about His nature and character. And he says in 1 Kings 8, verse 39, says, then here in heaven, as he prays out, your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, God, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Friend, you might think you know yourself pretty well, but you don't know yourself nearly as well as God knows you. And as much as you might know even your spouse or your child, someone that you have spent years and years walking beside, God knows their heart better than you ever will. God is the only one who really knows the depth of the heart. And so when we try to please people, we're often trying to please somebody who doesn't even really know what they want. That's an exercise in futility. Guys, how many times have you really thought this year for my wife's birthday or for Christmas, I got the perfect idea for a gift. And you went to great lengths to get that gift and to, to hide it from her so it would be a surprise. And, and you got it all wrapped up nice. And then you, you, know, you, you present it to her on that special day. And she opens it up. And you're waiting for And you get, mm, thanks. And you know that your wife doesn't want to crush your heart. And so she gives you that whole, oh, that was really thoughtful. Thank you for thinking of me. But you know in your heart of hearts that you absolutely missed the mark, that you could not be further from what she really wants, and that somewhere hidden in that complex female heart is something that she hoped you would dig out and discover, but you just, you totally missed it. It's hard, it's frustrating to try to please people because what they want changes. What they want is often shifting and different one day to the next. People can't decide what is best for them. I've got a little baby girl at home, and and I don't know how many times it has changed, but the doctors will tell you now that when you have a baby, when you go to put them down to go to sleep, you're supposed to lay them on their back. Okay, That's the most safe position for them to sleep in. My child will in no way, shape, or form sleep on her back, by the way. So I don't know how I'm supposed to accomplish that. So I just think back to about five or seven years ago when they said, okay, the only way you should lay your baby down is on her belly. Because if you lay her down on her back, she might spit up and then the fluid would go into her lungs. We can never figure out what we really think is best. Human beings are constantly changing the script. We're constantly coming up with new information or a better testimony that changes our ideas. So just when you thought you hit the mark and you've pleased man, man is not pleased again. Human beings can't make up their mind about what's going to make them happy. But in contrast, friends. In contrast, God is never changing. God knows what is best. He's not hoping that if he asks you to do this and then you do it, he's hoping that'll give him enough satisfaction to be happy with you. No, God knows exactly what you need to do. He knows exactly what he desires for you to do, and he knows exactly how to provide you the means to get it done. Numbers 23.19 reminds us of how different God is from human beings. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The first thing we see in that passage of Scripture as you look at it is that God and man are intrinsically different beings. And one of the things that is so different about God, one of the things that I have come to love so much, is that God does not change a bit. He is always what He is. He will always be perfectly pure, perfectly righteous, perfectly knowledgeable. And just think about it. If He's already all those things, if He's perfectly mighty and knowledgeable and righteous and pure, any kind of a change from that would be a corruption. You can't improve on perfect, can you? So God must always be what He has always been. That is the nature of of God and we can't handle that because we're constantly changing. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God knows. But wouldn't you much rather try to be pleasing to one who tomorrow he's going to demand the same thing of you that he did today and he's not going to in 4 days from now change his mind or 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 have a, a whim and suddenly he wants you to do something totally different. This God that we have come to worship today has revealed himself to us through the scripture. And this scripture, he tells us, will endure forever. So what he has revealed about us never goes out of style. It never becomes obsolete. It never needs an update because it is God's perfect word. Isaiah 46, verses 10 through 11 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes." calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. God says, I have purposed, and I will do it. I want to be led by that. I don't want to be led by human beings who maybe have an idea that they think is going to be great until they actually try to put it into practice. And then they've got to constantly flex and and adjust and, and change the scheme because it didn't work out quite how they wanted it to work out. Friends, it is a much better investment in our time and energy to try to be pleasing to the Lord God, who is consistent and steadfast, than it will ever be trying to please people. And thirdly, pleasing people will inevitably divide our allegiance. We cannot serve God the right way, If we are also trying to please people, the things that dwell in the heart of man are so intrinsically different than the things that are present in the heart of God that when you try to please both of those parties, one or the other is going to have to give. And because your your heart is naturally wicked, the tendency is when you try to please both God and man, you're going to slide towards the thing that is most, most natural to you. You're going to try to slide, without even thinking about it sometimes, towards pleasing people. And suddenly God is forgotten. God is overlooked and neglected. We cannot have a divided heart to the Lord God because this is the same God who says that you shall have no other gods before me. This is the God who says, you shall create no idols or graven images. I alone am the God and you will worship me. You will be my people and I will be your God. So friends, we, we cannot afford to desire to please people because when we do that, it waters down our devotion and faith to the Lord God. If those preaching a different gospel than Paul are right about his character, and if Paul is primarily a people pleaser, that is a serious problem. But when we look closer at the facts, when we look at the whole picture of Paul's ministry, we're going to see that the opposite is true. Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 22 says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all, why? For the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Look at that passage of scripture. What motivates Paul to be flexible adaptable when he goes into different cultures with the gospel. He's not motivated because he wants to be approved of by men and, and, and win the polls. He's motivated by this deep desire to share salvation with a people that are different than him. He cares so much for their lost souls that he will bend himself, if necessary, to gain an audience with them so that he can show them not him, but God. He wants to reveal the gospel to the people that are lost And he's willing to go to great lengths to do that. While Paul is quick to bend his own will to become a more effective gospel minister, whether that means that he's got to change his diet, whether that means he's got to be thrown in jail, whether that means that he's got to take criticism and endure it, he's going to be willing to do that. But he is adamantly against bending the message of God. The gospel can never change. What matters in each of these circumstances is not winning the affections of people. It's winning lost people to Christ. And Paul does all that he does not to please men, but for the sake of the gospel. And that, friends, is why he asked Timothy to be circumcised before their missionary journey. Paul looked at the places they wanted to visit. and He knew that if he tried to reach out to the Jews in the areas that he was going to, because Paul definitely was an apostle to the Gentiles, but he preached to the Jews as well. He preached to all peoples. And he knew that if he goes into these territories and he reaches out first to the Jews, usually through the synagogue, and if he's got a man who's preaching alongside him who is not circumcised, then the Jewish people are going to really struggle to listen to what he has to say. They were biased in such a way that they would shut Timothy down if they didn't think that he was in some way connected to them. So he goes to his friend Timothy and he says, I know this is awkward, but I think it's best if you get circumcised. We're going to be preaching this gospel to some people that, although it's superficial, are going to say, well, this, this man has nothing to say to me if he's not a part of the covenant people. And that's how they see a person being a part of the covenant people. So if you want to preach, that might be a sacrifice you need to make. And of course, because Timothy's heart is like Paul's heart and he desires above all to please the Lord, he says, then fine, I'll do what it takes. I'll sacrifice so that I can be qualified to preach the gospel to these people. And by doing this, he does not put Timothy under the law. He does not, this is not a confession that Timothy has to now fulfill all the laws of Judaism. That's not true. We know that grace alone is what saves us. It was a means by which Timothy was going to make a sacrifice to be able to preach the gospel well. Because Paul felt having Timothy circumcised would remove that barrier, Timothy was willing to do it. By standing for the gospel, even at the expense of his own comfort, even at the expense of his own safety or freedom, even at the expense of his personal reputation, Paul's demonstrating his deep desire to please not man, but God with all of his actions. I don't want us to misunderstand here. Paul's not compelled to please God so that he can win God's favor. That's not the point of all this. There is no way, Paul knows this now, that he may earn salvation through his own actions. In fact, he's going to battle against that very mistake as the letter to the Galatians unfolds. He's going to make strong arguments to them that their actions, their deeds, in no way qualify them for salvation. In no way do they earn them a reward from the Lord God. But the primary thing that motivates all of Paul's actions is love for God that supersedes every other love that he has. That primary love drives Paul. And it's not that Paul doesn't love people. When we say, do not be a people pleaser, that doesn't mean don't care about people. It means that your motivation for doing whatever you do in obedience to the Lord cannot be the approval of the people around you. It must always be the Lord God. Paul loves people, but he loves God more. And God's desires are more important to him than the pleasures of men. See how he expresses this in some of his other writings. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See how heavy Paul takes this, this burden? He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, he realizes it's not his gospel in the first place. So this whole mission is not about him. It's not about him sharing his views and his opinions or his scheme for salvation with anybody. It's about what God has revealed to him. He is simply a steward of that good message. And he says, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. How many of us have fallen into the error of letting other people grade our lives and treat us as if they get to decide whether what we do is right or wrong how many times have we questioned even our faith because somebody that we respected and admired thought low of us because of our faith and so we step back and say wow if that person doesn't respect me if they don't agree with me if they are disappointed in me that should i really believe in jesus christ should i follow him the way that i'm following him man has no business grading the test God is the one who tests the heart of man, God alone. So He is the one we should desire to please. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Again, he's echoing that that concept that he shared in 1 Thessalonians 2, that they've been entrusted with the gospel. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul is is not desiring to please people. That is not his whole goal or scheme. He desires to be judged only by God. So if the false prophets who are coming into Galatian churches and teaching mistruths are misrepresenting him, he doesn't defend himself because he wants their approval. He's defending himself because he carries the gospel as a steward of the truth. And he doesn't want the Galatians to be hindered from the truth by these deceptive lies of his opponents. Paul's stance is consistent throughout his ministry. And though he will go to great lengths to reach unbelievers, he is determined never to compromise the truth to please man. If he did, that would render his outreach null and void, and he realizes that. So friends, how do we identify in our own lives whether we ourselves are falling into this trap of becoming people pleasers? How do we look at our own selves and say, what am I doing? And it it might not come until you spend a good deal of time praying that the Lord will open your eyes to these things because it is so second nature for us. We are creatures who desire community. We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's one of our driving instincts. And that helps us when we get into the church to be a part of the church. But it can also hinder us if that becomes more important than our desire to belong with God. So you might need to really pray and ask God to search your life and show you, reveal things that you need to see where you've got to dial it back. And you've got to realize that my motivations are are not right here. I'm trying to be approved of by men in this situation. I'm doing this for the applause of people when in reality I should be doing this for the glory of the Lord. For myself, I know from experience that I've had to learn that lesson through disappointment several times. When you work so hard to gain the approval of that important person in your life, and you just can't seem to get it. It's taken me a long time to step back and realize that's not what I need to be chasing anyway. I need to be putting my hope and trust in the one who truly loves me. And if this other person doesn't approve of me, if this person doesn't think I'm good enough, okay, they're not my God anyway. The one opinion that matters the most is the opinion I'm going to care about. So ask yourself, when people get upset at me, when people are disappointed, why is that a problem? Why am I so heartbroken over it? Do I take it too personally? Do I take it too seriously when I think somebody might be a little bit upset at me? Am I really concerned about my testimony before that person? Or do I just want to know they love me for who I am? People are going to be upset at us from time to time. As Christians, as I said before, we carry a very offensive gospel with us. We preach a truth that is confrontational. And so there will be times, friends, when people are just not happy with you. Are you ready for that? That is one of the sacrifices we make to be vocal, honest Christians. We must make the sacrifice of realizing that we will not be everyone's good friend because the things that we have to say are things that the vast majority of people are rejecting. You may have to stop and and look at that glowing screen on the desk at home and say, all these social media outlets that I'm a part of, why do I spend so much time on them? Why is it that I feel compelled 6, 10, 20 times a day to check my Instagram or my Snapchat or my Facebook to see if anybody is watching what I'm doing and applauding it. There's even a button on there that says like, right? How many likes are you getting for the posts that you're putting on, online on your social media outlet? Now again, social media can be a tremendous resource for the body of Christ. Through Facebook, I'm able to spend time with people that I'm thousands of miles away from. I love staying connected to my friends on Facebook. I love sharing scripture and truth with people on Facebook or in different social media aspects. But we would all be joking ourselves if we didn't realize that these social platforms have just as much potential for bad. So many of us have taken these as tools to broadcast who we are just because we so desire someone to clap for us. Whether that's a digital like or a friend that someone clicks to acknowledge that they want to be closer to us, often the social media is just a means for us to try to gain the approval. Of people. Let us analyze these things, friends, and really examine our hearts. And if we need to, take a step back from this stuff and say, I have spent an hour and a half on Facebook today and I've prayed all of three minutes. Whose approval really matters to me? How much of your income, friends, is spent on projecting a very carefully choreographed image of yourself to the world? the clothes that you wear, the car that you drive, the home that you live in, that other people might not even know who you are, might think, wow, I wish I had that person's life. We've got to be very careful, friends, that we do not allow ourselves to get sucked into this vortex of public approval when it's not what a Christian lives for. So many of us have, without even knowing it, allowed these hooks into ourselves, and it's tough to to get free from the stranglehold. The only thing that frees us, friends, is the Holy Spirit and the Scripture that tells us the truth, that all the opinions of a bunch of strangers really should not matter a whole lot to you. The way that you spend your finances, the way that you spend your time, the way that you focus your efforts and your desires, does God approve of those things? Is He pleased? by what you're doing. Paul knows how dangerous it is to try and please people. The last part of verse 10 is a confession of sorts, isn't it? Let's look back to our original verse, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, where the apostle Paul says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Look at that little word still. What does that mean? That means that Paul is not speaking theoretically here. He is teaching us out of the wealth of his experience. For much of Paul's life, he has fallen into the very same trap that many of us need to shake free from. He was a Pharisee, a man who lived for the approval of others as he tried to keep meticulous rules and laws that were added to the law of Moses It gave him happiness and peace to see others applaud him and to see him as a holy and religious man. He describes it in some ways in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 7, where he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There's a very stark contrast here, friends. Paul is saying, listen, I've run that road before. I've tried to please people. I've been dissatisfied when others said, 'Mm, not good enough, keep trying. I know that hurt. I know that pain. It is a dead-end road, and I'd still be running it if Jesus hadn't interrupted me and said, listen, kid, it's not about what you can do. Why are you forcing yourself against Christ? He has come to save you through his perfect work. Pleasing people isn't Paul's goal any longer. He's come to realize through God's divine intervention that the only way that he can be approved of by God is by the hand of God himself. We can rejoice and celebrate here today, church, that God can set us free from so much of this burden that doesn't even have to be carried anymore. You might go home at night and think, why am I so lonely? Why don't people approve of me? You don't have to let people's approval or disapproval of you define you. You're a child of God if you trust in Jesus Christ. He looks down upon your life with joy seeing the truth of his son's sacrifice alive in you, the one who was lost but now is found, he rejoices over you. Don't let the opinions of your peers define your character. Don't let the ideas of the world tell you how you're going to spend your time and your energy and your efforts. Know that there is someone greater than any man, woman, or child. There is a God who spoke all things into creation, and he loves you. And you don't have to do anything to earn that affection from him. Please him, not to gain his love, but because he has given you that love freely already. Commentator Philip Ryken writes, Consider what the gospel says. It does not tell us what we have to do to please God. It announces that God is already pleased with us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. Be free, brothers and sisters, in the knowledge that it is not about what we can accomplish or do. It is all about the work of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? God, what a a terrible deception has made its way through Christianity throughout the world, Lord, where so many of us who have been set free from sin and have been shown the grace of Jesus and have learned the fabulous truth, Lord, that we don't have to prove our worth Because God has done that already through Christ, Lord. What a deception that we now find ourselves again crawling back into the old ways where we desire to be approved of by the world. This is one of Satan's greatest tricks right now. That he would try to teach the church this false doctrine. That if we're going to be relevant to the world, then the world must like us. That the lost world must approve of all of our doctrines, Lord God. Let us not be fooled like that. We know, Lord God, that the things of truth hurt the heart of man, but that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can heal the heart of man. God, let us find our identity in you. Let us be approved of by you. God, I pray that every good deed that we do would not be done because we want to earn something from you, Lord God, or prove that we're good, but rather it would be done because we are grateful for all that you have done for us. Amazing God, please help us to love you better, to love you first, to love you most. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name, God. Amen.